0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 60. Today in the show, Dan and I are bearing all and discussing our greatest failures and mistakes while deer hunting. Enjoy. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by our friends at Sika Gear. Now, today on the show, it's just me and my co-host Dan, but it's still going to be an interesting episode, I think, because today we're pulling all the skeletons out of the closet and sharing our biggest failures, screw-ups, and mistakes while deer hunting. And trust me, there are plenty of those to choose from. Wouldn't you say, Dan?
1: I'm glad you finished that sentence with, "wild deer hunting
0: because this could be a really long podcast if it was even more than that huh if it was life in general (laughs) that could be like a 17 part series exactly but we've got a lot to talk about on the deer hunting front too Mm -hmm. can I one-up
1: you for a second yeah go for it I checked my trail cameras this weekend and you didn't Uh, I know I'm super jealous too yeah I uh had a pretty decent pull not my best pull ever but uh um I have one buck that hit is back from you know the past four years we've been chasing him and he's pretty identifiable by some kind of sickness or infection he has on his back legs. I'm not sure what it is, but it doesn't seem to be affecting him much. Um, he's back, and then I got a pretty pretty cool non typical uh, picture. That looks like he could be a giant as well. So I'm pretty pumped to see uh, the next card pull next month.
0: Heck yeah, man! That's awesome. And you got to kill Ryan Iberg because that yeah. buck—he looks the buck, right? The buck, yeah. The buck, okay. Not your not friend, my friend. Not your friend. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's a good guy. <laughs> but that you know, like you said, that thing going on with his back foot, or is it both feet now?
1: Yeah, yeah. He's had it. He's had both, both, feet. both feet for three years. This is the third year he's had it.
0: Yeah, you got to take him out of his misery. Yeah. He's a I heck of so. a deer, too. Now, oh, that, other, that other big non-typical, could that potentially be mm-hmm. the one yep. and only?
1: Yep, that could be Mark Kenyon. I'm not sure. I ha- I think I have it narrowed down to two bucks. It looks like he's going to be fairly narrow. I mean, he's going to have a lot of mass. And uh, it could be another buck that I've been watching for the past couple of years called, and I've named him Dork. But he has he an extremely huge body. And... Not, you know, last year and the year before, he had some good mass to him and some non-typical points, but, you know, maybe at most 140 Yeah, for, for a size range. Um, this year, he could blow up to who knows what. and uh, But, you know, it's way too early to tell. You can only guess at this point. Yeah. He's got big split brow tens coming on, right? Oh, he's got one, one brow has a triple already and the other side split. And who knows what else it's gonna do?
0: Oh, that's awesome! I love split brow tines. All right, you do. Here's a question. Okay, what would you rather, if you were, you know, if we could be picky here, would you rather shoot a buck with split brow tines or split G
1: twos? Um, I passed a, a buck with split brow tines once, double split brows, so. I guess I would I would rather have a really deep split in the G two, and because uh, sh- that reminds me of shipwreck.
0: Yeah, yeah, those split G twos are sweet. Yeah. What about you? <sighs> I go through this all the time. Me and a couple of my friends, like whenever we're driving to our hunting properties or down for a hunting trip, we always like spend a good half hour to an hour going through these different like which would you prefer scenarios and this is a tough one always for me but i think i'd probably have to go with big split g2s yeah um i love them all. i love all that kind of non-typical character but split g2s are just cool they're i mean especially cool I another thing like i would love matching flyers off the g2s like oh a, boy like a yep. big massive eight pointer with matching flyers off both g2s that would be that would be sweet.
1: I got a trail camera for my birthday in 2006. It was like big batteries, had to use film in it, flash and all that stuff. And the very first time I got pictures developed, uh, I had uh, probably a 140 class buck with matching flyers off his backside. Oh, that is sweet. I lost that picture it kind of pisses me off that's a
0: bummer yeah. yeah that's a super super sweet buck what about do you prefer super wide bucks or
1: super tall and tall and narrow uh dude i love wide i love wide deer the kind that can't walk through corn rows because their <laughs> antlers are you know getting in the way all the time uh-huh. i love wide bucks those are
0: sweet for some reason i've got a thing for the super tall and narrow ones though yeah like i i i still haven't had a, I've even had a really good encounter with like a, really massive, thick horned, tight and tall buck. That's
1: that would be sweet. Um, that's on so your your ideal buck is, tight and tall with a split G two.
0: Well, I'd say tight and tall. <laughs> I'm gonna get real picky here. I'm okay. gonna say tight and tall, but like lots of mass. Like I love, lots of mass, yeah. I love a buck that's just like heavy horned So heavy horned, we'll call him. He's a, he's a heavy horned eight pointer. But like 12-inch G2s, 13-inch G3s, um, but he's maybe only like 13 inches wide, nice. And he'll have deep splits on his twos, but okay. then flyers off of his twos as well, or maybe flyers off his G3s. Um, that'll be that's the one I'm looking to shoot this year.: <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Yeah, Thanks.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, you can dream, right?
1: That's right, that's right. Yeah,
0: so uh, you got your trail camera pull. I still haven't seen any, or I haven't been able to check, but I'm itching bad after I saw you post yours, and I see different people posting theirs online. I'm getting itchy. So I'm, uh, like I said the other day, I'm, I'm starting to watch my deer hunting DVDs and shows online, and oh, just dreaming, just
1: dreaming. So uh, have, did you do anything exciting up there on your little vacation that you're on, shouldn't call it little, you're gone for three months, but uh, anything cool going on up uh, up in Idaho? Yeah,
0: yeah, we've been doing some fun stuff. We spent the last five days, I think, over on the other side of the mountains from where we live uh, on the east side of Grand Teton National Park, spent some time with my wife's family and did some cool hikes, did some kayaking and some gorgeous mountain lakes, uh, so that's been cool. Um, we're heading to Yellowstone in a couple days for an extended stay there and going to do a lot of fly fishing, hopefully, and see some buffalo and all that. So it's been good. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I'm going to start doing some big backpacking trips here soon, too. So, Cool.
1: cool, I, cool I'll cool. tell you
0: one thing. I will probably be kicking your ass in the mountains this this fall because I'm going to be doing nothing but hiking the mountains for two months. So I know you're working out, and I know you're going to be in good shape, but I, I might be able to. might be a little ahead of the curve on you,
1: Dan. Hey man, I wish I could simulate the thin air in those inclines that you, that you're going to be hiking in. I, I, you just can't, I don't care how, how many squats I do or reps on the stairmaster. You just, you cannot simulate actual environment.
0: Yeah. And it it definitely is different. I mean, you just have to get, get acclimated and and roll with this. So I got, I've i got a little unfair advantage, I realize. <laughs>
1: well, maybe you'll break your femur and then we'll be even. Oh well, thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have been having a really weird – I've never had any issues with my legs or knees or anything. But I, don't, I can't remember if I told you this or not. But when I was in, Monta- in Montana in April, um, I strained something in my, like one of the tendons. I, I know nothing about human anatomy. So the tendon or ligament or something behind my right knee. And ever since that point, it's been like my whole leg has started to feel weird and like just like kind of contorted. Mm-hmm. So, um, I Did visited like, it? well, no, I think I hyperextended whatever that thing is behind my knee, whatever ligament or tendon that is. And so it I is, went, yeah. yeah, that that might be it. Um, my buddy's a chiropractor, so he took a look at some stuff, and it sounded like you know that might have been an issue. And then, like, my hip and my hip and knee were kind of out of. I don't know, he did some adjustments, and I've been doing some different stretches and some different things, and it seems to be better, but I was getting really worried that uh, that I might have something up, and that would mess up my hunts this fall, but it looks like it's doing a lot better now, so.
1: Just rub some dirt on it.
0: Some dirt? Some dirt. That's yeah. what
1: my grandpa always said, if uh, uh, we ever got hurt, fell down, had a cut, rub some dirt on it.
0: Did you ever there's some stand-up comedian who always talked about how his like dad or his grandpa like whenever he had an issue he always said to spray Windex on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what who that was, but that was a that was his recommendation. But we're rambling. Yes, we are. We're rambling. We should get What, to, are,
1: we, what are we talking about today, Mark?
0: Yeah, we're talking about how we've screwed up. Our different mistakes, our different failures. Um, cuz you know, just like everybody else listening, you and me we've made plenty of mistakes over the years um, hopefully we've learned from a few of them right. and so what I thought we could do today is kind of bear all and share some of our biggest mistakes and failures with the listeners talk through those and maybe between the two of us we can figure out some things that we could learn from those and uh, maybe we'll all learn something along the way too so I've got a lot of different examples. And I have like some that are, you know, specific instances where I made like a screw up in a specific encounter. And then there's other times where I, you know, realized that I've been making a larger mistake over a course of years. Um, and then I finally kind of realized it and changed, you know, how I was hunting. So there's a lot of those types of things that, you know, over the last, you know, for me over the last five or six years, um, my hunting style and, and what I do has changed dramatically. Um, and it's you know it's resulted in you know dramatically different results from a success standpoint too. So there's been a lot of things over this last half decade, decade to half decade, um, for me where I've realized I was making a lot of mistakes and, and changed that. So we'll talk through some of those things for me, and, and I'm sure you've got some good examples too, right?
1: Yeah, I've been making mistakes deer hunting every season. Every season, you know, every, there's no such thing as a perfect. the the perfect hunt or the perfect season, because there's always something you can do better in my opinion. Yeah.
0: Yep. I think, uh, I don't think anyone can argue with that.
1: Well, why don't you start it off, Mark?
0: I think it's a good idea. So I've got a whole list here of different ones. Um, but maybe for me, one of the biggest mistakes that I think I made for a long time was related to and we've, you know, to a degree, we've talked about this in different little bits and pieces. But maybe we can take a larger stab at it. Is this idea of hunting too much, getting too excited? Like I always depended on the fact that I could hunt harder. Um, you know, for me, it's never been an issue of you know, am I willing to put in the hours or the time or the you know the days? Like I'll hunt the crap out of it, and I will hunt hard. and I will put in as much time as possible, but. I've come to realize that sometimes that can be a mistake in some cases. You know, if you are hunting every single day, but if you only have two stand locations and you're hunting those two stand locations the entire season, that's actually probably doing a lot more harm than it is good. Um, So for me, I started realizing that hunting smart is a lot more important than hunting hard. Sometimes, ideally, you want to be hunting smart and hard at the same time. So, You know, an example of this would be, you know, I, well, this is one perfect example. You know, as I think I had mentioned to you, for a period of time during high school, um, the only place I had to bow hunt was behind my parents' house. And that was three and a half acres of land. So I was working with some real small, real small piece of property there. But I was like, I'm going to hunt so hard because I want to kill a deer. And, you know, for me, it was like, if I put in the work, it'll work. And so I had like two possible places I could hunt on this three and a half acres. And I hunted like every single day I could possibly hunt after school or on the weekends. And of course, you know, the first day I went out there, I think, you know, in early October, I saw maybe six or seven does, a couple of young bucks, um, day two or three, I maybe saw three does day four and five, nothing. And then that would be the case all the way until maybe early November when finally you start to see some things and, I think a lot of guys have that experience, right? They go out in the early season, they see a good number of deer, and then it slowly gets worse and worse as you get into October. If you know, if you start hunting in October, and you know, that's where this October lull idea comes from that we've talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, while there are some reasons why there might be some type of lull, a lot of that is hunter created because people like me at that time were hunting really hard. And then they educate all those deer, they spook all those deer. And then when they don't see the deer anymore, they're wondering, oh, this must be this lull, the deer aren't moving anymore. But actually, it's because we got a little overeager, hunted a little bit too much, maybe didn't hunt smart enough, and educated those deer. And now they're starting to move different places or wait till after dark or a lot of different things. So I don't know. That's one, that's, you know, it's a very common mistake. It's something we've talked about before. It's something a lot of people, I'm sure, listening have, you know, at some point in their hunting career, experienced and then learned from, but it's one that's worth mentioning just because it's maybe the, for me, it was maybe the the biggest realization and the biggest change um, in my hunting philosophy was when I kind of wrapped my head around that. So I don't know. How about you? Does that, is that something you've experienced or learned about at all?
1: Yeah. And you make a good point when you say hunting hard versus hunting smart, it's two completely different things in my, in my opinion. What I really get a kick out, out of is, you know, you, the social media out there and and you hear guys go, nobody hunts harder than this guy or nobody hunts harder than the next guy. Uh, If you're going to, if you're meaning time in a tree stand, uh, there are thousands of guys who are hunting as equally hard as you, you know, it just because, and as we all know, just because the, uh, the end result ends in a buck doesn't mean you're hunting hard or not. I know guys who will go out and hunt maybe, Five six times a, a year and lay a big buck down every time because they hunt smart they wait they know what they're doing and they they go in at the right time with the right wind on the right access and they're just you know they're patient and that's and, and just like you man that's one thing that I have not I'm, I'm a hunter I love to hunt so if I know there's a big buck in an area but he's coming out after, well after dark, and this is one of my actual mistakes: is being being aggressive and not th- using my head and going into an area to chase a buck who's not showing up on a particular trail camera until like midnight, knowing I'm knowing I'm not going to see him, but I'm going there in there anyway. That's I, it. Didn't really click for me. I was just kind of wishing, you know on a whim maybe he'll show up tonight maybe he'll show up and then instead waiting watching my trail cameras and then coming out with you know going in when he starts getting real close to the sunset or real close to the you know the sunrise
0: yeah it's tempting when you know that they're in that area it's super tempting to go in there there's a there's an article on wired to hunt um where I shared some stuff from Bill Winky, who wrote a really great article, and then he sh- shared some different um, additional responses with me and Wired to Hunt regarding this very topic about the idea of understanding "quote unquote" nocturnal bucks or when a buck might be acting nocturnal, and you know, being smart about when you start hunting him. Um, I'll make sure to link that in this blog post because there's there's some good stuff there, and like you said, it's if you're not getting daylight action. Either that you're observing or that you're getting pictures of, or if you've got really good Intel or a really good reason that you think that they might be moving in daylight, it, you're just hurting things when you go pushing into these areas where you're, you're going to likely spook a deer or leave sign of your presence, and you, you never had a chance to see them anyways. So right I think for me, it's you know it's funny. back, um, I don't know six years ago maybe, um, when I first started wired to hunt six or seven years ago um you know I was super gung-ho I wanted to be hunting all the time and I think I hunted something like I don't know 90 times during season like I hunted every night I hunt every weekend I could possibly get away um and then this past year or I think it was well not 2014 but it would probably be um, true for 2014 as well but 2013 was the first hunting season after I quit my job my old job um and I thought okay I can hunt whenever I want. I've got no, you know, hunting is my job. I can go anytime I want. But because at that point I had learned that I want to be a lot more selective, I'd rather hunt fewer days with the right conditions versus more days, you know, willy nilly. And I actually hunted significantly fewer times in 2013 than I did, you know, back in 2009 or whatever. Um, even though I didn't have a regular day job and it was because I realized it made a lot more sense to hunt fewer times, but on the right times. Um, and the, the, the predict, the productivity of those sits is so much better when you're hunting smart. Um, I think I'm not, I guess I don't remember where I'd heard this, but the, the analogy of a drone strike, every hunt should be a drone strike. You should have you know done your Intel, you've done your research, you should have your Intel. You should have a very specific reason and a very specific location of where you think you can make that strike. And then when the conditions are right, you go in like SWAT team six and you kill them. That's how i try to approach my hunting now. Versus this, you know, shotgun approach of hunting everywhere I can all the time and hope that something goes right.
1: Right. I'm I'm kind of lucky. I have a lot of property that I can hunt. You do. And when I, when it's hunting season, I will be in a tree. If, but I'm going to be smart about it. You know, like I, I've always said, if you want to feel like killing something, go kill a doe. You know, in my area, there's plenty of those. So I want to... I'm going to be hunting. If I'm not after a particular buck, I'll be in a place where I might be able to hunt, you know, a doe coming to a food source or, um, uh, you know, a transition point or, you know, cause there's always, I, I want to fill my, I want to fill my freezer. Yeah. And at, at the same time, observation stands as well. So I am, I'm always looking for as much intel as I can get because trail cameras don't tell you as much as your, your eyes do. So I'll go out a long ways from the area and see, you know, if it's a real thick, you know, you really can't do that, but you can set up on a field edge. That's a hundred, 200 yards away where you think of some deer might be entering or exiting a food source and, and just set up shop there and know that, you're, you're not going to kill anything, but you will gain information that will assist you moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's, great. that's a great point. And I think that's, it's, that's the ideal situation right. is being able to hunt, you know, have, have enough spots, enough properties or large enough property where you can have your killing sits and your killing stands and only hunt those in the right times. But also, you know, if it's a Saturday morning and you want to be hunting, but the conditions aren't right for those killing stands you still have other you know plan b spots where you can go hunt just to enjoy yourself or to observe but those are in places that they're not going to screw up your really killer spots and that's the, that's the best situation so you know i hear a lot of guys or you know as we talked about last week or the week before on the challenge episode about how you know i this you know in relation to this exact thing is why i don't hunt many october mornings because i have limited places to hunt and because of that I avoid a lot of October mornings, you know, because I don't think the conditions are right or as ideal as it can be in a perfect situation, I'd have more places to hunt so that I could hunt October mornings in areas where I, they're lower risk, where I'm not going to mess up my best spots, but I can still get out there and maybe have a chance of something or kill a doe or something like that. So, you know, really the the best thing is to get access to more properties. So you have these plan B, plan C fun hunts where you, you maybe aren't going to screw things up, but you still can get out there.
1: Right. And that's kind of a good transition into one of my mistakes that I used to make back in, you know, probably 2007 is when I started doing it. But everything previous to that, or maybe 2008, but everything previous to that, I would see a good piece of property from an aerial map or some kind of platform book or see it, you know, I'd be hunting on a property and then see deer moving on another property. And I never took the initiative to go out and, and try to access that property. And, it and I had one of the biggest bucks I'd ever gotten on trail camera come uh, two years in a row coming to this one prop uh, through one property, but it was mostly nocturnal. And I knew if I had access to that property, I might have a shot of, you know, killing him. But I never took the initiative. And then he disappeared the the third year. And I kind of sat back and I go, hey, man, the the worst thing they can do is tell you no. And I know a lot of other guys, you know, listeners of this podcast have kind of have mentioned in, you know, social media that they kind of making the first step is the hardest. But once you do it, it, it all becomes easy.
0: Yeah, that's, and it's something we've talked about a lot before, but it's just, it's so important. Access, you know, just like in real estate, location, 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 you can't kill them if they're not there. Right. That was one of my biggest mistakes too. And it's still a mistake I make, even though we talk about it here and I preach it all the time. I still sometimes don't go out and do as much as I need to do when it comes to getting new properties. I need, I need, I need more hunting properties right now. I need to get off my tail. I need to knock on some more doors. I got to try to find some spots because I'm lacking. I've lost a couple spots in Michigan. I only have one decent spot. I have one and a half decent spots in Michigan now. Um, I'm not spending as much time hunting in Michigan anymore, but I still really should get another spot or two in Michigan. I only have one spot in Ohio. What if I lose that spot? I probably should be trying to find another spot in Ohio just in case. Um, But, you know. It takes time. It takes effort, all those things. So I got to get off my butt and do more too. Um, and also this summer um, when I'm driving back from Idaho, I'm going to be stopping in Iowa and spending a day knocking on doors there to try to find some properties to hunt this fall. Cause I'm hopefully going to be drawing a tag this fall for Iowa and I got to find somewhere to hunt. So nice. I'm going to be having to do that work a lot in the next couple months.
1: Nice. Nice. Have you been uh, looking at maps and looking at areas?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have I hunted there a couple of years ago, um, so I know the area pretty decently well, and I've got a, f- a few friends there that I go shed hunting with most every year. So I know a couple of areas that I want to do some door knocking, and uh, there's some public land I could access to. Um, so I've got some ideas. In the next month or so, I'm going to fine-tune that. I'm going to come up with a list, hopefully have 10 to 15 different properties and landowner names and addresses, um, have that all lined up. So when I drive through, our plan is to you know get in, Um, like early afternoon, my wife and the dogs go to a campground and I'm just going to spend an evening knocking on 10, 15 different doors and hopefully come up with something. So good luck, man. Thank you. If that doesn't work, I'm just going to sneak into your property.
1: Cool, man. I'll shoot. shoot
0: (laughs) Ah, Perfect. So, uh, anything more on access other than the fact that you'll shoot me if I try to access yours?
1: No, I mean it's, it's, you know, specifically gaining access. Um, you know, I have certain properties where I've talked to the landowner to, to access a certain tree stand. I'm not allowed to hunt on their property, but I'm allowed to walk down a two track and cross a Creek and get to a tree stand. So, it's it's even something as simple as that can make a world of difference, you know, so you're not walking all the way through a property as opposed from, you know, i hate to say it, but ruining their hunts potentially, as opposed to yours.
0: That's a great point. And a lot of times you, you won't even be ruining most some, sometimes these people's hunts because they might not even hunt their property. So there's lots of times where, like you said, just taking the time to ask can really change how you can hunt a property just by walking through somewhere else.
2: Yep, that's a great that's point. Fact.
0: And and those landowners lots of times will be a lot more likely to say yes, because oh you're just gonna walk through for five minutes. Sure, go for it. Yep. Um
1: this guy oh, he only shotgun hunts. So that's why I have access that's why he allows me the access to uh to do it. And you know, someday, maybe if I prove my worth, I uh I'll be able to bow hunt his property someday too. That would be nice.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah, real nice. So Let's, uh, how about another mistake of mine? Here's yep. a, sp- a specific, a couple specific examples where I messed up on a deer. Um, and then the kind of a larger thing to take away from it. Um, I don't remember if I had told this story. Uh, we've talked so much. This is episode 60. So, yeah. like, well over 60 hours of us telling stories. So, I might have told this one. I don't know. But um, tell me if I have. It was November 2nd, I think. No, actually, I take it back. I had hunted November 1st and 2nd on this property in Michigan, and then I went to Iowa for a week, and then I came back. So it was like November 10th or 11th. I came back, and the buck called leaner. He's a deer mm-hmm. that I've talked about before. At um, this time, he was a three and a half year old It was 2012, I think. And I've been sitting there hunting, and long story short, a couple of does came in. He surprised me. All of a sudden, like, it turned around and 40 yards away from me, this buck was right there, leaner. And I couldn't move, though, because he was so close. So I was frozen, and then he finally moved away, and he started moving through some tree cover. And by the time I was able to move around get turned around, he was out of range and moving away. So I had to grunt to him. I think I have told you this story. I'm, I'm kind of remembering this now. But long story short, I tried to call to him, and I did a couple grunts. I tried to be aggressive with a couple grunts. He didn't care. He kept moving. So then I'm panicking. He's getting farther and farther away. And I was gonna do a snort wheeze. So this time, I in my head I'm like, okay, do a snort wheeze now. But this is the grunt tube that had a snort wheeze tube and then a regular grunt tube. And instead of using the regular snort wheeze tube, which is just a funnel which amplifies the snort wheeze <laughs> sound, instead of doing that, I snort wheeze through the regular grunt part with a oh rate. So it just was like this horrible. Bah, bah. It was really, really, really bad noise. Very loud and scared the crap out of Leaner and he took off running. And I didn't see him again that year. Um so that was a huge mistake I made in a specific instance when I was trying to call to Leaner. I, you know, rushed it, wasn't paying attention to what I was doing, and I probably overdid it because I'd already tried a couple calls before that and he was going and he wasn't you know he didn't give a rip about it. I still kept going. Now, fast forward to the next year, 2013, I'm hunting in the exact same tree stand. It's about the exact same time of year. I think it was, again, like around that November 8th to November 12th. And he pops out again. Now, this year, instead of three-and-a-half he year, he's a four-and-a-half-year-old. He's in the 140s awesome Michigan buck. And he pops out maybe 100 yards away. And he's feeding down in this cornfield with a couple does. And he starts moving my direction, coming towards the same exact spot where I had, you know, snort wheeze through the wrong way at him. And, again, he's cutting away from me, not coming towards my location. So, again, I'm getting you know nervous. I want him to come my way. He's not coming my way. I need to do something, so I grunt. He looks, keeps going. I grunt again. He looks, keeps going, he keeps going. I grunt again. I think I tried rattling. He keeps going. gets further and further away. I snort wheezed at him, this time with the right tube. Um, I threw everything I had at him, and he eventually ran off. And it was, you know, it's overcalling 101. I was, yep. you know, panicking. I wanted so badly for this encounter to turn into a shot opportunity that even though I knew I shouldn't, I kept calling, hoping that one of these tricks in my bag would finally work. And, you know, as I think we've talked about before, eventually, you know, you have to realize when enough is enough and you're going to start hurting your chances of having an encounter with that buck rather than, you know, having something finally work. I think overcalling is something that many of us do. It's easy to do, and it educates those deer it's It definitely impacts those deer and you know I had now overcalled to this deer twice from the same exact tree stand, and I never ever saw him again from that tree stand and I think that's a big part of, i think I bet a big part of that was because he was starting to put to put things together and realizing that there's a really loud duck sitting in that tree, and uh <laughs> it's not somewhere he wants to go.
1: I have overcalled so many times that it, it would it's hilarious to even talk about. I've ruined more hunts because of calling, and I ruined uh, a hunt in I shouldn't say I ruined the hunt because he he had caught my wind, all right So he immediately stopped and this was with a 180 inch typical 12 pointer and uh, he caught my scent, boom stopped. He was looking around, he took a couple step backwards and he started to walk away. It was the rut. So I started I rattled, I grunted, I snort wheezed, and the snort wheeze got his attention and he turned around to start coming back to me. You know, basically just to look in the area. And then I never saw him again. So that time and then a year later, another deer walked through. Um, he walked through the Ozonics, calm as can be, but then he had the wind advantage. Even though he was out of the Ozonic stream in my scent, in my scent stream, I grunted just one simple, and he was gone because he knew there was no deer up there because he had the wind advantage. I, and that was with like a 170 inch eight pointer.
0: Was that Megatron?
1: Megatron, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a stud. So... Those, are, those were two examples of times where it's like calling statistically isn't going to do the trick. You have to be able to put yourself in the right location, uh, and if a oh, oh, deer is going to have your wind at any point, you can't beat their nose, man. I don't care what you have in the tree with you. Yeah. So, I don't know, man. I, now, the next season, I was hesitant to call, right? So... I was just, you know, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to ruin it. When the whole time, a person should be trying to observe a deer's body language. Yes. You know, if they're making a scrape, if they're raking a tree, they're in a little bit more of an aggressive mood. And you might be able to get away with calling at them. But if they're alert and they're coming in with their ears pegged forward and they're really observant, do not call at them. So you have to learn. I know I learned the hard way unfortunately, but you have to learn when to call and when not to call based off their attitude.
0: Yeah, very true. And and then also, you know, also the time of the year, Yep. They're, how they're reacting, what the area that you're hunting in is like, you know, in certain areas, if there's tons of hunting pressure, you might want to be even more tentative when it comes to calling because they've heard so many more from other people. Um, so you have to take a lot of factors into consideration before calling. Um, You know, it makes it, if you watch ads on TV, you know, it seems like calling should be oh, any buck that comes by, I should be able to grunt it right in. Um, But it's not a magic bullet. It's something, it's a tool that works, that helps sometimes, but. More times than not, it might hurt, than it will help. So you need to be smart about when you use that tool and how you use it. And, and a lot of that comes from just you know, experience like we've had you know, over the last decade, seeing these deer and what works and what doesn't work and when we screwed up and when, it, when it, we didn't screw up. Um, for me right now, I've got kind of a general set of rules for myself when it comes to calling. You know, if, it, if, there, if a shot opportunity isn't going to happen, as you know, I would rather have a deer just come in on his own With no calls on my own. So if he's coming my way, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to try to speed him up. I'm just going to let him make his way. But let's say I know for sure he's not coming in. I'm willing to try one. You know, For me personally, I start with a contact grunt. Just do a soft contact grunt. And if that gets his attention and he's intrigued by that, I'll just stop. Yep. Now, if the first try doesn't get his attention at all, it seems like he hasn't heard it at all or doesn't care or anything, I'll give him one more, but a little louder, a little more aggressive. Just make sure he's heard me. If that doesn't work still... Hopefully hopefully that does something. But if that doesn't, then I will try a snort wheeze if it's the right time of year. If it's during the rut when a buck should get aggressive and would be riled up by another buck, you know, challenging him, I'll try a snort wheeze. And after that, I'm done calling. Um I might if it's the right time of year, I might substitute a contact grunt with like a can call for a doe and estrus. If it's that time of year I might try that too. Um but kinda of, you know, there's always different situations and things might fluctuate. But that's my basic process. Um yeah. If there's a deer that's really far away, I might try rattling instead of that calling sequence because that'll carry farther. Um, but I've, I've decided I'm not going to do the try every single call over and over and over again until he disappears. Um, that's just not, that's not helping me.
1: One of the coolest things I've ever seen while in a tree stand was I watched, it, it was probably late October, so the time for calling was getting, getting good. And I was in wide open timber so I could see a long ways. And it was fair. I was up high and I could kind of see that, you know, all the way around me. All right. So I saw a buck a hundred so yards away from me, maybe even a little further. And I rattled at him. Okay. It got his attention. But I watched this buck make a complete circle all the way around me without closing any distance he made a giant circle all the, ra- all the way around me. This was before I was use, using any kind of scent control. Got my wind. and came out. The only reason I saw this buck is because the timber was so, so wide open. Now imagine if you're, if you're blind calling and it's in a thicker timber, you're not seeing anything coming through. The, these, these deer it is ingrained in their head to get, to get, get position before they enter this, the area. Unless they're so horned up, they can't control themselves.
0: Yeah. I think there are a ton of deer that we never see after calling, yep. but they are winding us. They're, they're aware of us. They circle downwind, and they wind us, and we never know it, but we spooked a deer without you know, having any idea. I think that happens That's
1: a right. lot. That happens so much
0: yeah and that's why I don't do a, I don't do I do some, but I don't do a ton of blind calling anymore because of that, unless I've got a really good setup where I don't think I'll get winded or where a deer just can't get downwind of me or something like that. So
1: The only time I will grunt is now is when I see a buck that I, that I want to shoot. Yeah. The only time I will rattle is if I see a buck that I want to shoot, or uh, sometimes I will blind call. And that is only if I am seeing a lot of movement. If you're not seeing a lot of movement, blind calling is not, see, movement is kind of an indicator of if there could potentially be other deer in the area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of mistakes that you and me have made, and I'm sure a lot of other people when it comes to calls. Now, before we move on to the next mistake, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear. On the last couple episodes, we've heard from Dennis Zuck, the Whitetail Product Category Leader for Sitka, as he's described why Sitka does what they do and who they've designed their products for. Now this week, we're tackling one of the most popular questions I get about Sitka. And that is, why is it so expensive? So
2: here's Dennis to answer that very question. (laughs) <laughs> that's a great one because it costs us so much is there is the right answer um you know so when you look at our products if you you know the trained eye looks into that and looks at the the primal materials the windstopper materials you know the, the the high-end zippers we put in our products materials is the first part of that answer it's the materials and choosing only the best materials for what we're trying to accomplish whether it's the wicking layer whatever it may be Um, and then it's the details, you know, and it's the process, you know, is it's, it's that two years of development we put into our products, the details we try to, we try to make sure they're the, the making sure that we're working with the best factories, they cost more, you know, all the things are for us about. Making sure that the last question we ask in our process is, well, then how much did that cost? And I know that's going to be really funny for, for folks and especially funny for all of us people in business trying to you know make, make a dollar. But for us, it's really where we, it, we believe if that's our first question, then we'll design around that question. And we would rather create products for the, the fanatical guy. And to do that, we're going to focus on the technology and the best product first and the details first. So there you have it.
0: sick gear building gear for whitetail fanatics by focusing on the technology, the product, and the details. now back to the show what uh what about next? you got another one you want, want to touch on
1: um i used to I used to play the wind too much What do you mean by that? meaning I was so afraid of getting busted that I would plan my hunts based on the wind blowing right in my face in the complete opposite direction where the deer were coming from. So, now that I know a lot more about how deer move and how terrain affects that, I was I was hunting completely all wrong. The deer were actually going to be heading away from me. They were going to be using the wind blowing into their face catching the scent of where they're going or working a ridge that is, uh, you know, let's say I'm sitting on top of a ridge and I'm looking down at a valley or a creek and the wind is blowing in my face going up, up the hill. I would never see hardly any deer because I was afraid my scent was going to get to this bottom and ruin everything. So I was, I was playing the wind thinking, you know, okay, no deer is going to, going to, Bust me in this CRP field or this cornfield because my wind is going right into it, and I'll see them before they see me. Well, they're they're entering that that food source or area wherever area you're at co- from a complete different direction because these animals are you you know uh, they live and die by their nose in the wind. So it wasn't until oh maybe four years ago that I four or five years ago that it kind of clicked, and now. The way I hunt is almost getting busted every hunt you want to you want to be in a position where if that wind shifts just a little bit you're screwed you have to you have to get into a position where a deer is going to come into your area and just barely not bust you if that makes any sense
0: yeah, it does It's, it's a big part of the big changes for me too that I've made that it made all the difference is you know I think from the way I look at it now is that, yes, you have to play the wind. But first and foremost, think about how to play the wind based on how the deer are playing the wind. Because right, a buck is always, like you mentioned, a buck is always trying to use wind in some way to his advantage to stay alive. Yep. So the biggest thing I think we all as hunters need to do, especially if we're targeting mature bucks, is try to understand how mature deer, how any deer really, but especially mature bucks, how they use the wind. So like you mentioned, in a lot of cases, they want wind in their face or crossing their face so they can smell what's ahead of them or wherever they're headed. Or maybe they're using the wind at that moment to scent check for does or whatever it might be. Or maybe they're checking their bed before they move in. We need to understand those. And, you know, we've talked about some of those things in the podcast. There's lots of great articles about that. There's lo- there's lots of resources that we can turn to to better understand how deer use wind. But you have to understand that. And then apply that to your stand location, and think, okay, don't pick a stand location because you're not going to get winded. Pick a stand location because a buck should be moving past that area because of the wind. He's using the wind in that area to his advantage. And then think about how you can set up in that location where he's using the wind to his favor to just barely cut the corner, like you said, to hopefully not get winded. Because if you're in a place where you're never going to get winded but no buck's ever going to walk through at that time, well, that doesn't do you a lick of good. Right. So that's been a big thing for me. And we actually um we posted a couple of things today on our Facebook page. There's a video with Todd Prignitz that's a really great resource about this. And then we shared an article on Wired to Hunt from Dan Infault, who has a podcast now where he talks all about using wind and thermals. Um, and those are two really good resources that we'll link to that that talk about this exact topic.
1: The other the other thing is a deer's a deer's nose is so good they don't need to see a threat okay so they're using these ridges and they're not exposing themselves all the winds coming off these ridges down into these bottoms and they're and and this is an example of where i hunt you know big ridges um coming off you know like a food source or a pasture or a crp field dropping down into a crick or a valley And they're just looping like halfway down these ridges or one-third up or down off these ridges to where they're not exposed at all, but they can scent check everything up top. And 90% of the hunters are hunting up at the very tops. So they're going to be out of range if you do play the wind correctly. So you got to get in there, let the wind and this is one of my best hunting spots. I now let that wind hit my back and blow my scent down into the bottom. These deer aren't in the bottom, they're up on the ridges, so they're coming they're coming halfway up right right into my location. So they're using kind of a 90 degree 45 degree angle to catch the wind coming off and by the time they catch me, they're already in my shooting lane.
0: Yeah. Those are those killer spots. Yeah, for sure. I um it's a tough thing to figure out, but this is something that um, that Infault mentioned on his podcast, which if, if you haven't listened to it, make sure you listen to it. There's a link on Wired to Hunt right now. Um, and he talked about how he uses milkweed to understand these types of locations, to understand what the wind is doing and how the deer are using it. So, you know, if you use a little bottle of powder, you spray that and it shows the wind direction, that only shows you what's the wind, what the wind is doing right next to you. But if you use milkweed or a little tuft of cotton or whatever it might be, you can actually watch that drift 10 yards away, 15 yards away, 20, 30, 40, and you can see what it does way far away. And so, in, in like your example right there, you know, if in the past, you might have said, Oh, I can't hunt here because it's blowing downwind of me. And if a buck comes through there, you know, he'll get my wind. But as it sounds like you meant, you saw it, that these deer where they do come through the wind, you know they won't get your wind yet because it blows maybe above them, right, and then drops down. Um, And so if you had milkweed, you could actually see what the wind is doing. So that's another good tip is is try a visual wind checker that you can watch in the distance to see how that wind changes in the distance. And you might find locations where you think you're going to be having bucks come downwind, but maybe because of an eddy in the wind or thermals or something else, actually you can get away with things. So that's something to try too.
1: Yeah. And it, it's crazy because this, this year I learned a lot about thermals from a mistake, you know, basically mistakes that I was making. And I almost compare it to like an ocean tide in these, in these bottoms and draws. It just kind of shifts back and forth until finally the it heats up and it, it, they're, they're gone. But I just would sit there and watch my um, Ozonics, the same company or Ozonics owns a company that, Makes little. It's. I think it's actually called wind tracker or wind checker or something like that. Yep. And I'm throwing these things out, and I'm just watching these um, these little fabrics hover in the air, right in between where the cold air and the warm air hit, and they're just floating there, and they're coming back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth until finally the the bottom sucks out, and they and they drop into the bottom. But thermals, man, and wind. It's one of those things where even if the wind is just a little bit different, you got to be prepared to sit in a completely different tree.
0: Yeah. It's, and even if you're doing everything you can possibly do from a sun control standpoint, which, of course, we recommend doing, yep. even with all your T's crossed and your I's dotted, still sometimes things aren't going to work exactly right. And so you right. still need to be playing that wind both ways. So, okay. all right. What's next? How about this one? Here's a story of when I was pretty young. Um, I don't know, early, somewhere in my teenage years. um, I was bow hunting, and I made a mistake that I learned from to a degree um, at that point. And it's developed in me a kind of a pre-game ritual before every single hunt now. So what happened in this case, and again, I, I don't know if I told you this, but tell me if I did. I was hunting on the ground, as I think I've told you before, Back in the day when I hunted my property behind my parents' house, it's kind of laughable now, my parents wouldn't let me hunt a tree stand because they were afraid I was going to fall out of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not very coordinated, so I can understand. But um, I had, me and my dad had made these portable ground blinds that were basically just like ski poles or like a long wooden dowel, like maybe four of them, laid out two or three feet apart, and then we'd staple like burlap camouflage fabric across the front of them and so you would roll it up in a big roll, and I'd hike out to where I was gonna hunt. And then when I got to where I hunt, I'd stake each one of those ski poles or dowels into the ground in a half circle around where I was gonna sit next to a tree. And that camouflage fabric would cover me, you know, would cover me to my like shoulders or my chest when I was sitting down, so I could move a little bit. So that was my portable ground blind back in the day, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. Um, I was bow hunting early on. I just started. You know, this is early on in my bow hunting career. I just started and hunting in this bottom. I see the biggest buck bucket ever seen to that point. From what I remember, he was a 10 pointer. Um, he seemed huge at the time. I don't know what that would equate to now, <laughs> but at that time he seemed huge. He crosses the Creek comes walking across in front of me. I get my bow ready. I pull the bow, you know, up. So I'm holding it about the, the height I need to, um, to draw back at him. He's moving from my right to my left. I'm pumped up. You know, I've 13, know, 14 or 15 or however many years old I was never seen a buck like this I'm shaking like crazy he finally is entering an area where I'm going to be able to get a shot so I draw back he takes another step I can hardly you know hardly keep my heart from beating out of my chest and as he's moving to the left I'm panning my bow along with him following along with him waiting till he gets to that opening as I do this he's probably 25 yards away so he was in within my range He's about to step into the opening. I'm drawn back. I'm ready. I move it a little more to the left just to get in that range, and clunk, my arrow, hits one of those dowels, because the dowels were stuck up about eight inches higher than the camouflage fabric all the way around, and I wasn't paying attention to that. I hadn't thought about that beforehand. The arrow hits the dowel, knocks off the arrow rest, falls off my bow, clink, clink, clunk. The buck sees me, hears me, runs off. Encounter ruined. What I learned from that, I learned that you always need to be aware of your surroundings when you're hunting and about what's, what you need to do and what's going to happen when and if a shot happens, if an opportunity arises. So what I do now is every single time I get into a tree, I practice drawing my bow back and I practice drawing and moving in each one of the different potential shot, uh, shot shooting lanes that I have. So I can see, oh, hey, you're not going to be able to move here because there's a tree behind your right elbow. Or, hey, if you, try, if you try to draw back here, your tree strap to your harness is going to interfere. So now I test that every single time I go out and hunt. I test that out to make sure I'm not surprised by a wooden dowel sticking up and knocking my arrow off or, you know, something else getting in the way. So that's been a big thing I learned. It was a big mistake I made. It probably ruined what would have been a really nice buck for my early years. And uh, now,
1: though, I've learned from it. Uh, dude, buck fever. <laughs> I used to get it real bad. Um, I, it cost me a two hundred and ten incher. Cost me shipwreck.
0: Can I say
1: Yeah. You always steal
0: my thunder. You always one-up all my stories. Every story I tell, I saw a 140. That was an awesome buck for me. And then you, I had an encounter with a 180. And then I talk about a nice 10-pointer. I had a nice encounter with a 210-inch. Like, man, you're killing me with these bucks.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry, dude. I guess I I didn't realize that I will stop <laughs> I will stop saying numbers.
0: No, no, don't stop <laughs> don't stop saying numbers. Just hunt somewhere with worse deer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> I'm gonna be the first guy to ever have a you know the Nine Finger Chronicles, the story of a guy who gave up it gave up everything to move to Michigan. <laughs> Not yeah. to hate on Michigan because I I actually been having a couple conversations with three different guys and they're saying that it's actually getting better up there.
0: It is getting better, but it's not, it's not Iowa. Right. Anyway, anyway,
1: I tell you what, buck fever, buck fever has cost me a couple deer. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, it's one of those things that you have to, you have to experience to, in order to realize it. You know, if, if a, the biggest buck you've ever seen comes through the, the area and you start shaking and going crazy, you know, I can tell you what to do, how to control yourself, but you're not going to remember it until you've actually had that encounter and learn from it, learn how to handle it. Some guys, you know, I think you wrote an article maybe about, um, big buck serial killers and some character traits. There's, there's certain people who just don't get worked up. They still get excited and, and, and love everything, but they, they they become focused instead of blackout like what I used to do. And now because I've had those encounters, I've been in those situations, I, I can remain calm to a, to a certain point.
0: It's definitely, like you said, one of those things I think that comes with experience. Unless right. you're just a stone-cold killer right off the bat and nothing phases you, yeah. for most guys, you know, me too. I still battle with that. You know, I still get fired. I'm a very emotional, excitable guy. Like I just stuff gets me fired up in general. So I was definitely predisposed to buck fever and I've gotten better, but I still, I still have to deal with it. I still learn from it. I still rush shots. You know, that's one of my big mistakes is I've rushed a lot of shots over the years and still to a degree do. And you have to kind of learn yourself, I think and figure out ways to develop processes to better handle it. At least for me, that's, that's how I've tried to attack
1: it. Yeah. 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 I don't know, man. It's, uh, you, you can't, you know, I had a whole bunch of good encounters with giant deer before shipwreck. And I think what caused me is the the actual time and effort that I put into that deer. Oh shit. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Instead of I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, it just kind of the moment caught up to me. And, you know, like they say in all sports, act like you've been there. And I'd never been there before.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for some people, like 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 we said earlier, it's just going to be one of those things you have to just get out there, experience it, learn from it, and move on. Because there's only so much you can do, you know, practicing beforehand and that, that really helps more than it will once you just get out there and do it.
1: Okay.
0: So, buck fever, dude. I'm sure. I'm sure both of us will have some case
1: of it this fall. Hopefully. I got buck fever right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pumped, dude. I don't know something like, I didn't get a hunt a lot because I was returning the favor, but this year, you know, with this trip that we're going on, and this, you know, every time I'm on the the treadmill or the stair stepper, I just um, I got this picture of. Like I don't know if I'm. It's like I had a dream the other day where I'm running a camera and you're drawing back on a a muley that stands up out of the bushes. So it it was just it's so one of those dreams that's really <laughs> realistic, you know, that's one of awesome. those. And i was just like, God, I hope that happens.
0: It <laughs> uh, would be sweet. I'm I'm yeah. pumped that you're gonna be hunting more this year in general because yeah. uh, I want to I want to hear some good hunting stories from you this fall. And I want especially like when I'm out there. What what would be super cool? I'm really hopeful this happens. Um, you know, I'm going to be coming and hunting in Iowa in November at some point. Um, so maybe it's like November 8th and either you or me shoots just a slob, like six and a half year old, you know, 13 inch G2s, 12 inch G3s, flyers off the twos, split threes, state record (laughs) and we'll record a podcast live from the spot. We'll bring our little like, uh. I don't know. I'll bring my Wi-Fi hotspot, and we'll record out there in the woods talking about it right then and there. That would be pretty sweet.
1: Well, I, you'd probably be crying, so there'd be a <laughs> lot of editing. That I've done. I do. I tell you what, if I shoot a giant deer, I will cry like a baby. I'm not joking. I, I get emotional. I do, too. I do, too. And it's okay. It's okay. Men can cry. It Show is okay. Your emotions. It but, is. Well, I guess if you ask my dad, no, they're not supposed to. They're not supposed to cook either, but I love to cook.
0: We won't ask your dad then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I'm I'm stoked. I'm ready. It's it's only the middle of June, but um, gosh, it's
1: gonna be every here for year. Hour. Every year it gets worse too. Mm-hmm. And I I still got a, like I was I was dialed in with my bow, and then I uh, the other day and my kisser button popped off, and then my peep sight started turning in my string. So now I got to go back to the archery shop and get that adjusted, which means I need to start from scratch again. So, yeah. That's a pain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I hate that. I absolutely yeah. hate when something like that happens with your bow setup. Yeah. Um, so, I got one more I want to mention. All
1: right.
0: Um, and I made the same mistake two years in a row, and it's stupid. And I shouldn't have done it, but I, I should have learned that first year afterwards, but I didn't. And this is a case where, you know, that, that first year I was hunting on a Michigan property and it was on. It was November 1st and it was just absolutely on during the rut. Um, there were bucks chasing does all over. I think I, I went out there in an afternoon. I got there at four o'clock in between four o'clock and six o'clock or whenever it was that it got dark at that time. I saw a I Eleven or twelve different bucks. It was just for for that area. It was unheard of. Tremendous number of bucks, several mature bucks, two bucks fighting. It was an awesome night, and you could tell you know there was a hot doe in the area. But I was scheduled the next day to drive to Iowa to start hunting in Iowa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had the flexibility to do whatever I wanted, but instead of staying there in Michigan where it was absolutely on at that moment. I was like, ah, oh, Iowa's better. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. And I left a very hot situation in Michigan where there was a doe in estrus, in estrus, and the rut was on. And I left to Iowa. And when I got there in the area I was hunting, it wasn't on. The the does weren't weren't in estrus yet. The bucks weren't chasing yet. It was really slow for like three days there. If I had stuck around an extra day in Michigan when it was really on, maybe I would have killed a great buck there. And I never ended up killing a nice buck there that year because I missed out on that hot spot. You know, the rut isn't like two weeks straight of nonstop action. It's very staccato. There's a there's a hot spot this day. There's a mm-hmm. hot spot maybe a week later. There's just a couple of these big exciting bursts of of you know excitement in a given area. And um, if you're on one of those, you really need to take advantage of it. Now fast forward to the next year. I thought I'd learn from this, but then again, the exact same thing happened. I'm out there. It's November 3rd or 4th, I think. I'm in Michigan, and a big buck is locked on a hot doe, and bucks are chasing all around it. I can tell there's a hot doe in the area. I'm watching it like 150 yards away. This buck is locked on her. Plenty of other bucks are trying to get in on the action. I know this is happening right then and there. It gets dark. I have to leave. The next day, I was scheduled to go to Ohio, and again the temptation of what's in these other states gets me. I packed up and left Ohio and I left what was an awesome situation there. And um if I had stuck it out, you know, maybe things would have been different in Michigan, but instead I went to Ohio and again exactly like in Iowa, the conditions weren't the same. The rut wasn't going right then and there. There wasn't a dough in the area that was ready to go and I didn't see crap for a long time. So, twice in a row I left a situation where the rut was popping and there was a hot dough in the area. And from now on out, hopefully I'll have the mental strength to never leave a hot zone or hot spot like that again. Because during the rut, if you have that hot dough in the area, if it's really cranking, you need to to stick it out in that area while you've got that little excellent opportunity. That was a big mistake I made and a big lesson I learned.
1: Yeah. I don't I can't say I've I've ever I've I've never had that opportunity to hunt another state during the rut, but you know, Mark. Yeah. Mark. 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 Yeah. Buck hunting one hundred and one, man. Don't leave the hot spot.
0: I know, and it's it's even if you you know even if you're hunting the same state like yep. in your case you know if you if you get a hot spot yeah like you said it's one hundred and one you can't leave it. And even sometimes that is one situation where it is okay to hunt a little more than you might usually in one stand. You'll of times we talk yep. about that you don't want to hunt the same spot more than a couple times because those deer learn. But during the rut, all bets are off. All bets are off. And if that, yep. if that action is super hot, you know, you got to stick it out. you got to be there. Um, it might be a day, a whole day. It might be two days. It might be three days. Um, but you have to be there when it's on because you don't get that many chances like that. Right. So... That was a big mistake.
1: Stupid, but I did it. We're we're smarter because of it, though, right, from these mistakes that we've made?
0: It's true. Like we always say, you have to learn from those failures, and we get, like you said, we get better because of it. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what this whole episode's about. It's about the things that have made us better hunters. We've screwed up. We've missed deer. We've messed up on deer. We've screwed up hunts. But, you know, sitting here today, I think you and me are much more effective deer hunters because we made those mistakes and because we thought about what those mistakes were and how
1: we could improve upon them. So, right. So, I mean, what we want to know is, you know, I, I, I always like reading the results of the podcast. So what I want to know from the listeners out there is, you know, to make it interactive is to tell us what your biggest mistake was and how you fixed it. And if you put hashtag W two H challenge, um, all those pop up by just by clicking it, all those pop up in the same feed and we can, uh, we can read those results and everybody can read the, those results. And, and your mistake might help someone else make that particular mistake. And, you know, that's what this is all about, helping each other and, and, uh, preventing stupidity.
0: So I've got an idea. All right, let's do it. Um, so we use the hashtag W2H challenge for our, you know the challenge that we yep. the challenge episode we had a couple couple episodes ago, okay. Um, and I, I like the fact that lots of people are engaging with that. You know, sharing their challenges or how they're tackling one of the things we talked about. Um, and so I've been thinking I want to you know just like you said, I want to find a way to you know get ever all of you guys listening. You guys can interact with us more on each episode um, and talk about each topic. So I'm thinking two things. For each episode, I'm going to post you know this podcast we'll post it on the wired Hunt Facebook page and we'll have a discussion topic for each episode. And on the Facebook page, you'll go to the post for this episode and you guys can answer the question or we can all discuss a certain topic underneath that Facebook post. On top of that, we'll also have the hashtag like you said, Dan, but what I was thinking is instead of using the same W2H challenge, perfect. Instead of using that, since we already kind of use that, let's use a different hashtag for each episode. So, If you're talking about podcast episode number 60, do hashtag W2H podcast 60. Nice. And that way, anytime you guys have a question or you want to comment on something stupid I said in episode 60 or anything like that, just post about on Facebook or Twitter with hashtag W2H podcast and then whatever number. And then we'll all be able to see it we'll all be able to you know, participate in the conversation for that specific episode. And uh, that should make things, I think, easy. And it'll be a cool way to engage on each one of those. So for this one, Dan, like you said, um, let's hear about what your biggest mistakes were. So on Facebook, we'll post this. We'll be asking you to share your biggest mistakes. And feel free to comment on Twitter, too. And uh, it should be interesting. I'm hopeful that you and me aren't the only ones doing some of these stupid things, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hate to be left out in the cold. For
1: sure.
0: So... I think that's a good I think that's a good place to stop. What about you?
1: Yeah, I uh I really should stop doing these podcasts with you because every <laughs> time I every time I I sit here and I record one, then I have to go upstairs and I really I really don't want to talk about the bachelorette, <laughs> um, but I'm kind of forced to. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd rather talk about deer hunting or our mule deer trip or something like that, but instead I gotta watch Dora the Explorer or change a diaper or you know do do dad stuff
0: hashtag dad problems, <laughs> 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 yeah, man, I feel for you, but uh just think a couple more years and Mac will be your hunting buddy, and then you'll be able to go upstairs and talk big deer with him yep so that's a fact that will be pretty cool so all right let's shut this down and uh we've got some really cool guests coming up in the next couple weeks dan um that i'm working on lining up so we've got we should have an action-packed summer leading up to the hunting season here on the podcast so (laughs) there we go sound effects sound effects (laughs) there you
1: go perfect timing
0: that was good i like that i think (laughs) you can keep your job (laughs) yes um, okay, so before we wrap things up, though, another quick update. Wired Hunt decals are now available with our new logo. We used to have some of the old website design, the whole logo. We've got new decals available for sale on the site. So go to wiredhunt.com, click on shop, you'll see those decals. They're pretty cool. I got them on the car now, so uh, check those out if you'd like. Um, another thing, another reminder, question for all of you, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast on your mobile device, you might want to try that. It's a lot easier. I've gotten feedback from, from some people saying that you know they, they listen to it when they're actually going on the website and they click play on the website, but then they have to leave and they lose their, their, their track or whatever on the site. Um, it's a lot easier if you just have it downloaded to your phone or your tablet device. So go to iTunes or go to the podcast app on your Apple device or Stitcher. For your Android device or or any other podcast app, and just subscribe. That way, you'll get it to your phone right away. You can listen to it when you're driving or whatever, and uh, it's just a, it's an easier experience. So I'd recommend that if you haven't done that yet. Um, also, we of course want to thank our partners who help make this show possible. Um, you know, as always, we, we say this, but we really really mean it. These companies are supporting us, so we would appreciate you know anything you can do to to support them or let them know that hey. Thank you for supporting the Wired Hunt podcast because it's it's half decent. Those guys are kind of interesting to listen to occasionally. So, thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and of course, thank you to all of you listening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate your time. Hopefully, you learned something from this from us sharing our stupidity and our mistakes. Hopefully that wasn't just uh, boring to listen to, but actually helpful, and maybe you can relate to that too. So thanks a lot. Have an awesome week, and stay wired to hunt.